We are going to be reading Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a companion psalm to what we looked at last week. So sorry if you missed last week, but I'll say just a couple words about that just to get us all on the same page. So last week we were looking at Psalm 20 that comes obviously right before Psalm 21. And the basic idea that helps you understand Psalm 20 is it is the people of God, the covenant people, praying for their king on the eve of battle. So he's getting ready to go out to war and they are all praying, Lord, would you cause the hand of our king to succeed? Because if the king wins, we win. If he is victorious, we the people are victorious. So we saw that this is a prayer of the people and they're saying, give him safety, give him success, give him ultimately salvation. And the first thing I want you to notice about the psalm that Deanna read with us this morning is that God did what his people prayed for him to do in Psalm 20. So he not only saved the king, but he heaped more blessing, more honor, more glory, more fame, and all these additional promises on the king through this subsequent victory. And by the way, that's just like Jesus, and this is just like Jesus in your life and in mine, that very often we are praying, Lord, save me from battle, save me from conflict, save me from the trials coming in the first place. And God is like, no, I'm going to take you through them. And by taking you through them, I'm going to bless your life and I'm going to grow your character and I'm going to grow your faith in ways that you never would have experienced had you not been taken through the battle in the first place. So big picture is the people in the last chapter prayed, in this chapter, God answers. In the, in the last chapter, the people prophesied what God would do. Now they're looking back and saying, God did do. In the last chapter, they're saying, we trust in the Lord, in the name of the Lord, not in horses and chariots and armor and weapons. And God is showing in this chapter that their trust was well-founded because he came through for them and for their king. Okay, so now context of Psalm 21 is now the people, here's, here's how I want you to look at it. The people are standing on the other side of victory. So they're not looking forward to a battle saying, we trust you to deliver your anointed. They're looking back and saying, you did deliver your anointed. You did these things. You answered when we called and we want to praise you for it. 
okay? And this is where we pick up today's theme. It's something like this. Recognize the invisible hand of God and praise him for working salvation in your life through his king, okay? So, and I know there's, there's a little bit of an oxymoron or a paradox in there because I'm like, recognize the invisible hand of God. And I want you to just think of, um, we, as we were praying before the service, the New Testament talks about this. You don't see the wind, you don't see it. It's, it's clear. It's invisible, right? But you see the effects of wind. You, you feel the effects of wind. Your different senses in real time are like, yes, I can tell it's windy. Well, often the strength of the Lord is that way. That you don't see the Lord, but you see many things happening around you. And if you have eyes and the eyes of your heart to see these things and to recognize them, you'll realize this is God. And God is strong and God is working salvation in my life in my family, in my church family, he's still active, and I want to praise him. Okay, so we're going to break that down with this. Number one, the Lord answers his king. Number two, the Lord eradicates his enemies. And number three, the people praise him. It's that simple, okay? So starting here, I said the Lord answers his king, and I've already said that, but I want to direct your attention for just a moment back to the bookends of chapter 20. So remember this, the people are praying, chapter 20, verse 1, May the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble. And then chapter 20, verse 9, the end, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And now 21 is going to rehearse, God, these are all the ways that you answered the king and therefore answered our prayer, like our prayer request, okay? So look at this. So verse 4 of chapter 20 May the Lord grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your plans. Then you flip to verse 2 of chapter 21. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So the first way we see that God answers is literally just a granted request. We saw last week that, that, I, that this is not your, your life verse for like, whatever my heart's desire, I'll just pour it out to God and God will give it to me. He owes it to me. The, the idea in chapter 20 is the king's plans were battle plans. He's about to go into war and he's trying to figure out, Lord, how do I defend your people? How do I protect your people? And how do I advance your cause in the world? And that's the plan that God is blessing when he says in verse two, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Well, going on in verse three, we see God answers him with prosperity and promotion as well. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And the blessings, the barakah word, is a verbal blessing. It could be like if, if you bless someone, and I know we use that euphemistically where we're actually like cursing someone, but it's, it's blessing. Like there's a verbal blessing of like, thank you, or the Lord grants you this, or praise kind of thing. There can be a verbal blessing, but the same word is used for tangible blessings, which is how I think it's used here, because you have a king coming from battle, essentially with the spoils of war, and the people are recognizing, Lord, you have met him with rich blessings as a result of this conflict to defend your people. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And this is, this is a word not for the coronation crown, like he wasn't king before, now he's coronated and he's king. But it's actually the word for like the victory crown or the victory wreath that would be placed even like on an athlete's head back in the day when you're the victor, you're, you're number one. And this idea is like you've met him with prosperity, you've met him with victory, you've met him with promotion. Going on in verse four, you've met him or answered him with eternal life. They say, he asked life of you 
you gave it to him. But then notice this, length of days forever and ever. And I think when this is a reference to King David, it's just simply like he was going into battle when he asks life of you, he's just like, don't let me die. Like, let me stay alive through this battle. But you notice that God has, again, blessed him more than what he asked for. And it's not just, I preserved your life. It is, and, and it's literally, I blessed your life into everlasting, continually and forever. And by the way, that's not just spoken of David. We'll, we'll come to what this is ultimately pointing to. We know David died and his tomb was with the people of Israel. So who is this pointing to that someone asked life of you and you gave it to him forever and ever? Going on, God answers the king with glory. Verse five, his glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. And there's like three important words here that are not distinct in meaning, but they're kind of piling up on each other to give you this idea of what God is giving through salvation. Glory is that word of like the weight or the significance, the beauty of something. Splendor is that like brilliance, again, beauty, glory, but it's also this word for authority. And then majesty is like awe-inspiring. When you see something majestic, it's like that thing that takes your breath away and inspires awe because it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, it's so big and, and beyond you. And what's interesting is the king, you know, this is again, there's a reference to King David. You can see that in the heading of the psalm. The king already had glory. He already had splendor. He already had majesty before these battles. But the idea is, as the result of God doing something in his life and through his life, he gets even more glory, even more esteem, you know. And, of course, I thought of, of one of my favorite movies instantly, which is Top Gun Maverick. So Maverick, he has a certain glory. He has a certain honor. He has a certain authority because people recognize you're one of the, the top fighter pilots in the Top Gun program, but if you've, if you've seen the movie or, or know the basic idea, it's also like you're, you're kind of old, you're kind of washed up, okay? And so the young people are like, we're better than you. We have more glory than you, more awesomeness, more reputation for being able to fly these amazing new aircraft that you never imagined flying back in your day. And, you know, when Maverick comes back and not only trains the next generation of fighter pilots, but actually goes on mission with them. You know, and he's getting additional kills and he's doing things with his plane that they can't do. And then he's like literally saving their lives. But then there's this important part of the story and sorry if this ruins it for you. Then someone comes back and saves his life and they go home together safely and everyone's cheering and everyone's exultant and everyone's over the top with joy. And they're like, glorious things of thee are spoken. You know, it's like, he's, he's incredible. Like this guy that took us in and did these things and saved us and we saved him. And there's this idea that the, the glory of this king is being enhanced. Yes, God is saving him. God is working through him. But because he's going into additional battles and doing additional things to protect his people, the people are seeing that and they're like, you have more majesty, you have more authority in our lives. We have greater esteem for you because God continues to work in your life. That's the idea. And then notice verse 6, another thing that God answers the king with is just the joy of, of his own presence. So verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. I'll come back to that in a little bit and kind of show you what I think it actually means. But you make him glad with the joy of your presence. 
and the people are recognizing and the king is recognizing the greatest gift is not the spoils of war or personal additional esteem. The greatest gift that God can give to his anointed is his own presence. And just the king knowing, like, the father is with us. The father is for us. And yes, he's blessed us monetarily. And yes, he's, back in this day, blessed us with more land, more property, some of the promised land that he promised to give us. And he's blessed us with safety and deliverance from the people. But the greatest gift that God is giving here is just the joy, the gladness, the, the, the lightness, and the peace of his own presence. Okay, summarizing what I just said, the anointed king goes into battle. He risks his life for his people and God's people. They put their trust in God. God delivers him as a result of his trust and obedience. So you look at verse 7. For he trusts in God. So the king is trusting, trusting, trusting. The people are trusting, trusting, trusting. They go into battle. God answers and delivers, and God exalts. God promotes. God blesses. And before I go on here, I want to pause and just contrast this with our like, highly individualized Western culture where essentially our Western culture is like, it, it's all about self-promotion. It's all about self-exaltation. Um, we're kind of like, if, if I'm going to get the life I want and the blessing I want and the esteem I want, like I go after that myself and I kind of grant that to myself by making my own decisions, by exalting myself, by following my engineered plan for my life. And he's like, no, no, no. Like instead of this self-exaltation, this self-promotion, you submit and surrender your life to God and say, God, I trust you. I follow you which includes following you into very challenging, very hard things and trusting you to exalt me, to promote me in the ways that you want to bless. And that's kind of a snapshot of a good chunk of this Psalm 21. Um, now I want you to notice the, the flip side of this. So he's exalting his king. He's exalting his anointed. But we can't just gloss over the fact that simultaneously the Lord is eradicating his enemies, and the enemies of his people. So look at this, verse 8. First of all, God discovers them. He says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And there's this promise elsewhere in Scripture, or this kind of like prayer. Where can I go from your spirit? Like, I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I descend into the depths of the earth, you're there. You're everywhere. You see everything. And that can be a very comforting thing of like wherever I go, whatever circumstances I'm in, God sees, God knows, God cares. He is everywhere and he is all wise at all times. But if you're not on God's side, if in fact your life is being lived in rebellion against God, that can be a terrifying thing that there's nothing that he doesn't see. There's, there's nowhere that he can't go. I thought of like um, reading this verse, your hand will find out all your enemies your right hand will find out those who hate you. So these are words of hostility. This isn't just like, oops, I, I, I didn't realize I made a mistake. I didn't realize that I did something in the word to disobey God. This is like an open hostility and a rebellion against God. It's a hatred toward God. And the evil word that's used here is a word of like harm. The essence of evil is doing harm, both to yourself and to others. It's, it's a mutilation of God's plan for your life to commit evil. Okay, and I'm thinking of like the hunt for Osama bin Laden. 
where it's basically like, and I think one of our presidents said this, maybe George W. Bush, of like, you, like if you're our enemy and you're attacking us and you're killing our people that are just going to work, like we will find you and destroy you. And I know that's like, that, that's an intense thing because I mean, we're, we're what, what, it's 2023 in a very progressive city and we're like, no, I don't want to hear that. Well, no, because God's like, when you do harm, and you destroy, instead of lifting up the image of God in other people, you want to destroy the image of God in other people. It's actually good news that the Lord would say, I will find you. Um, by the way, if you believe this, this is part of what the New Testament will use to say, you don't ever seek your own vengeance or revenge. This is why you are released to forgive people who hurt you and do really, really hard and painful things to you that you want to hang on to and you want to, you want to get revenge for that thing. You want to hurt them back or make them hurt. And this is part of why it's like, no, if I release this to God and trust him that he will either change that heart, which he often loves to do, completely transforming his enemies into his friends by grace, or just in the sense of like, God, God will handle this better than I will. And I just think of like, what if the US military can go into a foreign land and just hunt and hunt and hunt and, and say, we won't stop until we find the mastermind behind this destruction, this evil. Like how much more can we trust God? He will not rest until he has eradicated evil. It's good news if you don't wanna be evil, okay? He discovers them. Verse 12, he disperses them. You put them to flight. You aim at their faces with bows. The idea is if like you're coming into battle and all of a sudden you, you turn a corner and you realize like there's someone there and you're, you're put to flight, you're, you're now turning and having to run instead of being in command of the field. And then the remainder of this text, verses 9 through 11, he destroys them. And there's this image of a fiery furnace and something that's hungry, something that, that wants to consume and to burn and Again, another thing I want to kind of resolve in our minds is that when the scripture is ever talking about God like discovering evil and punishing evil, it's not like a sudden flare-up of God's temper where it's just over-the-top, unreasonable, kind of petty or arbitrary frustration where he just flies off the handle. Again, they're variously described here as enemies of God, as hateful, as those who plot evil and devise mischief. It's not just that, again, they've, they've done something wrong. He's literally like, when they sit around at night and they are scheming and plotting together, what they are scheming and plotting is not, how can we do good? It is, how can we do harm that benefits ourselves? And I'll say one more time, it is good news that God, God will not tolerate evil and the brokenness forever. It's good news that he will somehow make a way to defend those who are victims of harm and trust in him rather than just simply letting them be forever steamrolled by something that's greater than them. Okay, so God is delivering and exalting his king. He's eradicating his enemies. Now look at the people's response. And these are the bookends of the text once again. So we're kind of working from the outside in or the inside out now of the text. So verse one, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices and in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. So again, this is, these are the people who are looking at their king 
And they're, seeing, saying, they're, now, they're now saying to God, look at how our king rejoices in your deliverance. Therefore, we're rejoicing in your strength and deliverance. And then you come to the last verse of 21. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So the king is praising the Lord. The people are now praising the Lord. And because the Lord has saved his king, all the people are saved. Okay, so everyone now is praising God for his strength and power. And I think that's an interesting thing in this context. Um, This is how you win battles. (laughs) In ancient warfare, this is how you win battles. You have to be stronger than the adversary. You want to win a battle? And it could be like part of your strength is um, the plot, the plan, the scheme. It may be they have a lot more people with a lot more weapons, but you actually end up being stronger because of the way that you have thought things out. But I want us to focus for a moment. There's this meditation here in the middle of this psalm. It's really quite incredible. What the people, it's at the heart of the people's praise. And it's verse seven. And notice the people refer to him as the most high. And some of you have heard this Hebrew name, El Elyon. They're saying, you are El Elyon. You are, you are most high. There, the idea is you are lifted up above everything. And so therefore the idea is there, there is nothing above you and there is nothing beside you. You are the most high God. You have the most strength. You have the most wisdom. You have the most justice. You have the most grace. But look at what surrounds their ascription of God as being the all-powerful, the most high. They, they are praising him literally for the steadfast love of the most high. And family, that could be, those couple words could be a sermon in and of itself because this is what our salvation is dependent upon, the steadfast love of the most high. So just meditate on this for a moment with me. We need God to be the most high. Like we need him to be the most powerful. We do not want to, and we, we in fact would not serve God if God were like second best or third best or kind of like part, partial deity, but not really fully highest God. Because you would be entrusting your life to someone. You would say, well, you're strong. Are you most powerful? No. So there's certain adversaries that could defeat not only me, but could also defeat the God I worship. The idea is there is no adversary that can defeat the God that we serve. None. Again, there's nothing above him and there's nothing even beside him. So it's really, really good news that God is most high, that he is El Elyon. But that by itself does not get you your salvation. That by itself does not make a God that's necessarily worthy even of our worship. Simultaneously, we have a God who is a God of steadfast love, has said. Loyal, faithful, covenant love. We would call it unconditional love. Like you didn't earn it by meeting certain conditions. Therefore, you can't lose it by messing up. It is just faithfully, loyally, always there. That's what steadfast love is. See, it doesn't do us any good to have an all-powerful God if God doesn't love us, if God isn't committed to our good. It also doesn't help us that much if we have a God who's like a God of steadfast love, but he's, but he's weak. 
You know, he's like your grandparents and they love you and they're committed to you, but there's only so much they can do. They can't save you. They can't rescue you from a lot of your trials. They can't pay for your college tuition. There's, I mean, there's a lot of things they can't do. And you're like, thank you for loving me, but you're not worthy of worship. But what a meditation it is in the middle of the psalm and the root of the people's praise to say, why were we saved? Why did you work through our king this way? It's because you are simultaneously all love and all power. And that's a God we can get behind. He is the God, period. But also, what a God to serve. What an incredible hope that in any situation, there's, there's no one stronger than him and he's committed to you and your good because he absolutely loves you. And any promise that he's ever made to you in his word, he's like, I remember my promise. You forget my promise. I remember I love you deeply. Okay, now let me show you a couple gospel applications here in closing. We'll take a little bit of time with the first of these. Um, we talked about this last week, but I really want you to see this this week. And so the first application here is I want you to see how Jesus... I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of the New Testament, is the ultimate king that is depicted in Psalm 21. Okay, and we saw last week how when, when the people are praying for the anointed king, that word anointed is the Hebrew Mashiach, from which we get our word Messiah. The same word Messiah in Greek is Christos or Christ. Okay, so you already have a clue just in the language itself that this is pointing us not ultimately to David or to any like merely human king who, yes, fought battles and yes, God worked through, but did not live forever and did not work this kind of salvation for his people. But the Christ did. And what we see is this prayer and now the praise of God's people is looking way beyond David to a future king who would come and he would put his trust in the Father, and he would deliver all who trust in him. Okay, and, and when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we see this one called the Son of God, Jesus, and he comes to earth as the Son of Man. And by the way, you can look in the genealogies of Matthew chapter 1. This is very important. Jesus is born into, through Mary, his mother, his biological mother, and the Spirit of God, he's born into the line of King David. So he, he's a legitimate descendant of King David's throne. And that's important from a human perspective. It's important from a theological perspective. That Jesus is actually legitimately, he gets that throne of Israel if he wants it. If God recognizes you are the anointed. By the way, as Jesus' ministry develops, he claims for himself, I am the anointed. I am the king that you've waited for. And I've come to save my people from their sins. He claimed to trust God to deliver him. And he claims that the Father will give him glory. He claims that the Father will exalt him. He claims that the Father will give him this forever life. So I want you to consider a few verses here from the New Testament for a moment and just see if you hear some echoes of Psalm 21 in what Jesus and others say. So John chapter 17 like right before Jesus goes to a cross and lays down his life. This is right before Passover. And John 17 is often known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. So he is, he is showing his people, he's showing his disciples, I am the intercessor. 
You're not looking to another earthly priest anymore after me. You're looking to me and I pray for you. I mediate this relationship between the Father and broken, sinful people, okay? In the middle of that prayer, we read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And if you're like, what did you just read? I want you to notice Jesus has this eternal glory, splendor, majesty, to use the words of Psalm 21. But because of what he's about to go through, he's saying, I will have more glory. And Father, as I as I come to this altar of sacrifice, as it were, as I come to this cross, I'm praying now before I go, remember me and glorify me. Like lift me up because of what I'm about to do and give me more majesty, more splendor, a greater reputation amongst the people that you're wanting to save because I've come to save them. You fast forward in the story a little bit. When, when Jesus then is betrayed by Judas, and he goes through this series of trials and he's actually crucified by the Romans. We read this in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 41. So he's hanging on a cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders. So these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And it says, and they're mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. And they recognize that. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And there's an interesting paradox in one hand. They're like, he is the king of Israel, but look at him dying. And he trusts in God to deliver him. And their, their false assumption was, and the father isn't delivering him. Because look, he's dying. And by the way, he, he will die if you don't know the story Jesus dies on that cross and the assumption of the religious people is we, we just killed a fake Messiah because we killed him. But the story's not over, right? So you jump to Philippians chapter two and we read this, an admonition from Paul to the church, but mostly about Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, that's the glory, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's where we're left hanging in Matthew 27. He trusted God to deliver him. The king was wrong. The king is dead. But Philippians goes on, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus dies and everyone's like, he trusted in God to deliver him. He's like the king in 21, except he didn't get the deliverance that King David got. He's fake. 
And then on Easter morning, Jesus walks out of his own tomb. And by the way, that is the Father's way of saying, I accept his sacrifice. I honor his sacrifice. His was the right sacrifice for all who come to him in faith. They get the forgiveness of their sins. They get the kingdom. They get all the blessings that he has earned for you. Now, now let's, let's go back to Psalm 21, just the first few verses, and let's just insert Jesus where it says king, okay? Where it says he, oh Lord, in your strength, Jesus Christ rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly Jesus exalts. You have given Jesus his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips for you meet Jesus with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Jesus asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The glory of Jesus is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him for you make Jesus now, here's where I'm going to change a little bit. You make Jesus the source of blessing. It really doesn't mean you just blessed him. That's great. He got blessed. No, it's, the idea is the source of blessing. You made Jesus the source of blessing to all forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For Jesus trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And I'll just stop there. I mean, the psalm is all about Jesus. And ultimately, the story that God wants to work for you through Jesus, which is the second application then. Specifically, I want you to see how God fights your battles through Jesus. Because God is sitting back, not as someone who's just like angry and worked up over your sin and your brokenness and your falling short. And we think of all the ways that we fall short. We confessed it this morning. It's in thought, word, and deed, in the things that we've done and in the things we've left undone. So God could just be perpetually mad if that was his character. But instead he says, there is stuff overcoming each and every one of you that you are not able to overcome on your own. So I'm going to send a king. I'm going to send an anointed to do battle on your behalf. And because he is most high, filled with steadfast love, he will accomplish what he intends to accomplish for your life. And so Jesus' death is not just like some tragic set of circumstances or something that you say it's just really unfortunate that he stumbled in Jerusalem and got himself killed that way. It was deliberate because we see my sin is more powerful than me. And you ever, you ever face, like you try to face a temptation on your own and you're just like, anybody else ever pray prayers? Like, I will never, ever, ever do that thing again. It's so stupid. I can even see in hindsight as I age a little bit, get a little bit more mature, that thing that I thought would be so pleasurable, so fun, the thing I had to have, it ends up being really harmful, not only to others, but to myself. And I'm never going to do that again. And then you realize that temptation is stronger than me. Like, why? Why do I go back to something that's so harmful to myself, let alone to people I care about? That sin is stronger than me. And then you do it and you realize that guilt is stronger than me. That shame is stronger than me. And maybe I'm pulling away from people who would see most clearly and transparently into my life because that sh I'm just overwhelmed with shame. And I'm like, I'm sure everyone can see what I can feel. And then certainly like the justice of God, the condemnation for our sin is stronger than you and me because we can't overcome that justice on our own. We can't just, we can't just be like, well, let me pay it off. Well, it's like the parable that Jesus told of like your, your debt is something that's so great you can't even begin to pay the interest on which continues to accumulate and you continue to get more debt as you live. So we can't, 
overcome the condemnation. We can't overcome the adversary. And I mean like literal satanic demonic forces that again are invisible. We don't see them, but they're out there. The Bible says that's where our real battle is. It's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood and just stuff happening down here. He's like, your ultimate battle is there's the demonic forces that, are, that hate you because they hate God. And we are not more powerful than them. And certainly death, the, the final enemy to be destroyed, we are not more powerful then. And we know that because we can spend all kinds of money and we can work out and we can eat right and we can do all the things. And, you know, death's still batting a thousand. It's still going to win. It's more powerful. But do you know that in Jesus coming and laying aside this glory and taking on humility and going to that cross, he's going into a battle. Christus Victor, we've talked about this, especially around Good Friday, right? He's going into a battle and he's saying, let me destroy, let me eradicate any enemy's claim on your life. Sin has no claim on your life. Temptation, yeah, you, you can't stand up to it, but by the power of the Spirit at work in you, you can. The, the sin itself is more powerful than you, but Jesus says, I, I erase its claim on your life. Guilt has no claim on your life. Shame has no claim on your life. The devil himself has no claim on your life, and death has no claim on your life because he says, I defeated death. So you will die, but you will come alive again to a bodily resurrection and an eternal life and eternal future with God. And we need to see through a Psalm like 21 that the ultimate king is Jesus and the king fights for you. And he fights all powerfully and he fights in love. So therefore, and this is so obvious, but I gotta say it, therefore make praise a regular part of your life. I think one of the most obvious things about Psalm 21 is so obvious we could miss it. Psalm 20, if it were just there by itself, the people, again, they're praying and praying and praying, God save the king. Well, what happens so often in our life? We're, we're praying and praying and praying, God save the king and God saves the king. And we're like, okay, good. We move on to our next problem. Now God do this. Now God do that. And the people are like, no, no, no. We're, we're going to stop right here because we prayed for God to do something in our lives. God did something. And we're just going to park right here for a minute. And we're going to praise him. We're going to say thank you. And do you do that? I'm talking about the, the, the gritty real life struggles that each and every one of you have with maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's job stuff or education stuff right now. Maybe it's a relationship or a few relate or several relationships. Maybe it's just like the, the politics and culture of our world. You just feel overwhelmed and beat down. And it's like, but, and you're praying and praying and praying, God, deliver me from this or help me with this or give me safety in this or give me wisdom in this. And God does. And you're just right off to the next complaint. And I think we as the people of God need to make a regular practice of, man, we are going to praise you. And part of how we're going to overcome the, the depression that some of us are prone to, part of how we're going to overcome that is living in praise. And when God does something, we're just going to be like, okay, stop. Y'all come celebrate this with me. Here's what God did. And by the way, they're, they're also praising their king. And that's okay. Like, you know, when you go pick up your kids from kids' church, it's okay to be like, thank you. 
And see those who are leading you in worship, thank you. See neighbors doing things for you, it's like, thank you. Live in an attitude of praise and gratitude and contentment because the more we rehearse praise for the things that we see God doing and the more that we're developing eyes and eyes of our heart to see that invisible hand of God working on our behalf and we just like, you know what? I'm, I'm prone to pessimism, I'm prone to, I'm prone to realism, okay cynicism, whatever your thing is, the more you're like, I'm just going to look for what you're doing, God, and I'm going to praise you for it. I'm going to praise you to someone else for it. That changes the way you see your world, and it shapes your heart to be a heart of thanksgiving instead of a heart of ingratitude. I think of that, I don't think it's a parable. I think it's an actual story in the life of Jesus, you know, where he's traveling and comes across these 10 lepers, so a leper colony. And he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And what that was in that day is he's not only about to heal their physical bodies, which was important. They had, a, they had what was then a, a deadly disease. There was no cure. So he's like, go and show yourself to the priests because I not only want to heal your physical body, but you're also outsiders. You're outcasts. You are the marginalized. You're forgotten. And Jesus sees you. And Jesus not only wants to heal your physical bodies, he wants to bring you back into the worshiping community of faith and make you an integral part of this family that he's doing. So go show yourself to the priest because the priest then had the authority according to Leviticus, you know, the stuff you, read, you, you skip over in your Bible reading plan because you start reading laws about people bleeding and leprosy and stuff and you're like, I don't need this. Like, what's the next narrative, right? Well, it's in there that the priest would have the authority to look at someone and say, yeah, we see no evidence of this disease anymore. You are clean. You're, you're re-fellowshipped amongst the people of God. And so he's sending them, asking them to trust him for a victory they haven't yet seen. And it says, as they go, they're healed. And one turns around and comes back to Jesus and says, thank you. Like you really are who you say you are. And I trust you and I thank you. And you delivered me from all. And by the way, the, whatever gospel that's in, I don't recall, makes a point. And he was a Samaritan. He's, he's the half-breed who's still supposed to be the outsider of the people of God, according to some people. And he's the one that's like, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would show up in my life and heal me and refellowship me. And God did. And before I go talk to the priest, I want to go back to the one that made me whole and say, thank you. And Jesus says, I thought I healed 10 of you, you know? And he's, it's not like he forgot. I mean, my goodness, you know, where are the nine? Well, they were just off with their life. Can we, can we not just be off with our life? is kind of where I want to leave you this morning, that as we're praying and trusting God and asking him for big things, and it's good to pray big prayers. Like, if God doesn't show up, don't pray these little prayers of just like, I could do that if God, be like audacious and courageous and bold. But then when God shows up in your life, and he will, let's not just be off with our lives. Let's stop and say, thank you. You're such a good God, and you have all power and I see that you love me.